Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor Kara. Will, it is the Kalen DeBoer show. The Kalen DeBoer show. This episode is going to be all about the new Alabama head coach. Jim Dunaway is going to offer up some different perspective on that, as well as why he was so confident that Bama would avoid a very Tennessee-like hiring and have uh, actually, instead of doing the Tennessee thing, Bama would actually have a quick search, and that's what ends up happening, even though it felt very long and strange at different points, depending on when you were bringing this up. But uh, we will discuss all that with him, and then we'll end with Jersey Day. You are rocking a fire Bobby Boucher jersey that we will dig into. My God, that might just win the whole thing. And then, well, tell my mom we talking about foosball on this podcast. She told she thought it was a cooking podcast. Foosball, play foosball with your friends. I, I'm, that's mm-hmm. that's as far as I will go with a Kathy Bates imitation. We will not do that. Um, but yeah, it's the devil. And then we're going to end with Lad of the Week as well. But first, we need to talk about the biggest news in college football. Some would say the biggest news in the SEC that we have had in a very long time. Kalen DeBoer replacing Nick Saban. The search that lasted two days that, as I just mentioned, felt like it was longer at different points. Public tweets from Dan Lanning, Steve Sarkeesian, Mike Norvell. Go figure that Lane was the coach who didn't have some sort of weird announcement to say, I'm coming back or something. Mm-hmm. That tweet that uh, had the audio, you sent me this, the leaked audio of Lane turning down the Bama job was 100% fake. That got me for about 30 seconds. I unsent it. I've been exposed. But the thing is, he replied to it. And that's the thing about Lane. He does a little trolling. You know, he does, he's never going to be the guy to put out the statement. He's the guy who's going to take a picture of himself at the airport. He's going to be the guy to really just mix it up in there and then finally just be like, hashtag come to the sip. I'm staying the whole time. There's no way that would ever exist. There's just no way, but I guess when you have a blue check these days and they can be purchased, a cool website that's being operated. Um, mm-hmm. so, but yeah, DeBoer became the guy. Depending on where you read, he was number one choice for Greg Byrne. Maybe he was choice number four, whatever the case. I, I, I You could debate how relevant that is. There's something that I don't think is relevant. It's going to be kind of the crux of our conversation with DeBoer today. Well, I'm going to do something... I don't usually do as it relates to this topic. I'm not one who tries to be evangelical. I don't try and convert people to having my beliefs. I try and present things the way that I see it. I'd like to think I have a pretty neutral viewpoint on a lot of things related to the SEC and relates to college football, just from my vantage point, not necessarily having a dog in the fight in the way that many others do who are on the other side listening to this or they are on this side talking into a microphone. So my only goal today is to open your mind to the possibility of something. That's okay. it. That's that's all I want to do. We disagree on this subject, which is fine. Discourse is great. It is probably fitting that we have this discourse that we'll get into today because based on social media, there's a lot of discussion about this very question. Is Kalen DeBoer doomed to fail at Alabama because of his lack of Southern ties? No, you, that is not what I think. It is not okay, okay. lack of Southern ties. Okay, so, <laughs> so ex- explain explain this 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 viewpoint because we were kind of getting into this even before he was hired. Yes, okay. So let me just give my total take about the boy. And I'm only cautious about this because sometimes they do kind of play into the hater character. And honestly, I'm more myself on this podcast than I am even on Twitter. So just to let y'all know, I'll be getting jokes off on Twitter. This is my professional life. How I really think 
I'm not going to say something ridiculous and absurd to you the way I will on Twitter because you're respectful. Like, I respect you and I'm not going to fill your mind with BS. Like, I'm not going to BS you, basically. Now, on Twitter, it's all jokes. So I want to start there. Uh, second, let me just give you a quick, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to do a pros and cons. How about you start with the pros? And okay. that way it's not, yeah. That's, that's fine. I, I don't want to make it seem like you are coming into this strictly from that standpoint and he right. is going to fail. There was a certain text that you sent me that made me think, oh, God. I'm really going to have to defend this. And it wasn't just you who said this. There were people in my circle, in my orbit, who brought up this point and said, here's why this won't work. But I think in general, people are having this discussion and it is really, really interesting. And to be clear, I am not sitting here saying that I know Kalen DeBoer will have success at Alabama, nor will I do the thing where I put lipstick on a pig and, and pretend to become the biggest defender because that's not my job. That's not what I'm here to do. I am just strictly saying that his destiny is yet to be determined based on where he's coming from as the coach who at this time last week was coaching in a national championship game. So mm -hmm. all those parameters are out there. Hopefully we'll present a somewhat nuanced take because you're right. It's not fair for me to just say that that is strictly your viewpoint based on this text that you sent. What was it last? Yeah, last Thursday before this went down, which... The people don't need to see that, right? They don't need mm -hmm. to see that text. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I here's the thing about DeBoer. Like, there are obvious positives, right? And so the positives are he is, I think, probably the primitive, like, like schematic mind offensively in football right now. Him and Ryan Grubb have a scheme that they have proven has, you know, beaten Dan Lanning. It has beaten Caleb Williams. Three times. It has yeah, like cooked. Like his record against ranked teams is silly. It's silly. Like I, I get all that. Another thing that is I, I'm kind of starting to think about all this stuff and how it fits together. I thought a huge challenge for this team is going to be fixing their offensive line, which was just putrid last year. Like no more pretending to put lipstick on a pig there. Well, we saw in the national championship game, this was not some world beating offensive line at Michigan. And what that comes down to and why they won the Joe Moore award, giving up. Well, you mean the, not some world beating offensive line at Washington? At Washington, yes. You sorry. said in Michigan. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Against, yeah, against Michigan. It was not some world-beating, you know, classic, like, you know, ground-pounding offensive line. What it was was their sack numbers were amazing because of the scheme. So they had all these dropbacks. They had this quarterback who was not super mobile. They didn't have an escape artist, you know, like we've seen. And they were able to keep him clean. And I think a lot of that is the scheme. And I think at the end of the day, if you're a team like Alabama who struggled on the offensive line, it may not take you that typical three, four years, maybe two years in the portal to get a, to get guys on on board because they won't be protecting as long. Now with Jalen Milrow, you never know how long you're going to be protecting. That's that's a one caveat is they have one quarterback who was on time the entire time and Milrow likes to make more things happen with his legs. But I think that's really, really cool. And, and one further thing, and I'll, I'll use this as a transitional point, I don't want to make it seem like I've completely turned on this guy. The things that I liked about the, him and the reason why I liked him at Washington was he came from, you know, Sioux Falls. He came from the middle of nowhere. He was not off somebody's coaching tree. This was not another Saban disciple. This was not some, you know, OPR safe hire. They took a swing at Washington and it worked out. Now, that being said, that can be a blessing and a curse in a little bit of a way. Now, what started to make me scratch my head about this came exactly from the announcement, which was we are all getting PR'd by Jimmy Sexton, who is the best in the game. I am so impressed by what Jimmy Sexton did. It was an absolute masterclass in the search. So you look at all of the people on the, the you know, wish list for Alabama, 
all of them, we'll never know the full list, right? Because like the guys that didn't get extended, you know, they don't want that out there. But the list that we heard about that was public, all the guys that got extended, almost all of them, Lanning, Sark, you know, Lane, ad nauseum, were all Jimmy Sexton clients. So my opinion is it was floated out there. This has been talked about for a while. This pool of coaches, this is just my theory, it was all floated to them. And the biggest match, it was kind of like if you've ever seen residency matching in medicine, where it's like, here's my first choice, here's my first yep. choice. Da, 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 da. I think that's how it happened. I don't think there was as many hard no's as I initially did. Because once I started thinking about how this stuff, you know, landing drop in the video, all this stuff and how it played out, this was like, you know, 10 to 15 people doing a PR masterclass. So I will give Alabama credit. And what you started off the show with is so correct. This was not a Tennessee search. This is not getting left on red. This is not any of that stuff. This was, here's your offer. I'm going to float it amongst my clients. We're going to see who you like the most, who they like the most, who's willing to leave now, who's willing to meet conditions. And we'll never know that. There'll be a book written one day that'll probably go into that, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. My my pushback would be how many big time surgeries can operate in college football without Jimmy Sexton having a, a big piece of it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they all are Jimmy Sexton masterclasses because Jimmy Sexton is the masterclass himself, the super agent that represented, what, 11 of 14 SEC head coaches last year. Yeah. And also he represents Sark. He represents Venables as well. So mm -hmm. that number is, is I mean, it, it's going to continue to climb. So it's like, well, you could say that, that there are definitely PR elements where he was working behind the scenes to be able to make this happen. But also it's kind of inevitable. Uh, there are not right. going to like if hold on, if we're talking about a Michigan vacancy and the coaching carousel keeps on spinning, if there is a replacement to Jim Harbaugh, there is a good chance that Jimmy Sexton will probably be involved in one way, shape, or form. That's mm -hmm. just, that's reality. This was a masterclass. You are correct. But mm -hmm. do I think that, that Kalen DeBoer got this job just because of who his agent was? I don't. I think it helped get all those other guys paid. I do. Right. I definitely do. But I do think that there are so many elements to what he brought to the table that might have not screamed 100% lock it in. He's got to be the guy from the jump, but why I'm okay with that. So let's, let's dig into that part of it um, right. and, and why, why it could set him up for success. Those success is obviously not guaranteed. Oh wait, and I'll just say this really quick. The reason why this one was so impactful was because it was the top level clients. It was the guys at the highest, highest salaries of college football. And it was a hard job to turn down. So you're right. Every search involves them. But if you, let's say you have the Iowa job and you call Sark, he's going, all right, man, like I got stuff to do. Why are you calling me? If you call Sark about the Alabama job, he's going, now hold on. What, what do they offer it? Let me, let me hear you out. And so I'm just saying from that standpoint, taking care of everyone involved and getting everyone to their spots. I think this was because everybody won is where I'm going here. Everybody won except the boosters that are going to have to pay even more for coaches that they're like, wait a minute, why, why am I having to pay more for this this coach on an annual basis? Yeah. Uh, okay, so the the Southern Ties thing, the, right. that that whole discussion, the, the elephant in the room with those who are coming to this show, listening, saying he can't work because of where his resume is based. Mm -hmm. Nick Saban obviously did not have Southeastern Ties before he got to LSU. And then mm -hmm. obviously we know what happened after he he proceeded to recruit his tail off. He leads LSU to a national championship, the whole deal. Same with his successor, Les Miles, who in many ways is kind of the gold standard for the guy who replaces the guy 
that's kind of what you aspire to be able to have someone that can continue to build someone that can elevate and someone who's there for a decade plus, even though it ended horribly, we know about that still less had a lot of success, even though he's coming from Oklahoma state and he's not right. necessarily coming in with that resume, Brian Kelly, oh, the yeah. most perfect modern example of his lack of Southern roots. It gave us viral moments, but I will continue to give the guy credit for in a very cheesy, corny way, trying to at least adapt. And he tried mm -hmm. to as adapt to his surroundings. And so far, I would say that he has passed the adapt test based on the fact that they've had consecutive double-digit win seasons and the way that he has gone about hiring this staff, an issue that we have talked about could potentially coming in his way. He has really been able to pass that so far with swift, decisive decisions. And the recruiting has obviously been really, really good. Well, I remember you dunking on plenty of people who doubted Brian Kelly just because he wasn't a Southerner. And you right. argued, and you were correct in your argument, that he wouldn't be limited by recruiting at LSU like he was at Notre Dame because, hey, when the pockets are deeper, that completely changes your recruiting ceiling. That's proven to be true. Urban Meyer, perfect example of this. He's the dude with the Midwest roots who spent two years at a group of five program, spent another two years at a bigger group of five program. That's what Utah was at the time. People forget just in the Mountain West where he had never signed a top 50 recruiting class and he had one single four-star recruit. Paul Salai, I think is how you pronounce his name. I don't know. It's sure. a Samoan last name with a lot of vowels that I probably just butchered and I apologize to Paul. And then all he did was come into the SEC with Florida, set the conference ablaze with two national titles, several elite recruiting classes. Obviously, couldn't keep up with Saban's Alabama, and that was his undoing at Florida, but still someone that had historic amounts of success in Gainesville. Three of the four or five best SEC coaches of the 21st century did not have Southern roots before they got to the SEC. And you mm -hmm. can say, well, they succeeded in a different era, but they were still pulling in top five recruiting classes and doing so with staffs that had those ties, which is obviously really important for Kalen DeBoer. Okay, I I'm going to acknowledge that. That is a right. big part of this whole, can he, can he not succeed in a very new part of the country? He already retained... Roach and Gillespie from Saban staff mm -hmm. can't just bring over your entire Washington staff. Can't do the whole Scott Frost coming from UCF to Nebraska thing and be like, Oh, my entire staff from UCF is great. And this is all going to work out. You can't do that. He didn't do that. He instead brought with him the best two parts of that Washington staff, Ryan Grubb, the OC that Saban himself wanted and couldn't get last year. And the receivers mm -hmm. coach Jamarcus Shepard, who did a whole lot of good in that Washington oh, receiver yeah. room the last couple of years, man, like, what they did with the Dunze, McMillan, Polk, like remarkable, remarkable stuff that you're hoping will translate at Alabama if you're Kalen DeBoer. So that's that's a big part of this. I'm a believer that you can be the best coach in the world, but if you whiff on your staff hires, you are in trouble because mm -hmm. it isn't just related to recruiting ties. Alternatively, I have seen, I don't want to say a ton of resumes, but I've seen enough resumes that we praised for how rooted they were in the SEC or rooted just in the South in general. When Jimbo Fisher was hired at Texas A&M, yep. loaded, loaded with experience recruiting in the Sunshine State. And, oh, because he's at A&M, they have the deep pockets. He's going to do well in Texas as well. Recruiting wasn't an issue for, for Jimbo Fisher. But if we're being honest, Jimbo Fisher had never truly built his own program and was doing that for the first time at Texas A&M. And it ends up being a bad combination of multiple things. When Will Muschamp was hired at Florida, 
loaded, loaded with experience in the South. He's the Saban disciple. This is this is the next guy that's going to be a force in the SEC. But if we're being honest, he had never truly built his own program. And my goodness, did it show with his evaluation and development of the quarterback position. Jeremy Pruitt was hired at Tennessee, loaded with experience in the South. But if we're being honest, he had never truly seen asparagus before. <laughs> that was his big hurdle, and I said it at the time. Yep. You know, he had never played the speed of asparagus. And when it hit him, it hit him hard. I mean, if someone had just asked in that introductory press conference, wherein we, we had this whole coup with John Curry and Greg Schiano is hired and then not hired. If someone had just raised their hand and asked, Jeremy, can you name five vegetables for us? Can you? Can you, can you possibly do that? They would have... Phil Fulmer would have said, nope, we got to continue the search. We got to keep this going. They would have been able to spot it. But instead, you know, we we're blinded by this. We we're like, hey, mm -hmm. this guy, he gets the South. He understands it. Those guys all fail because of the decisions that they made after they were hired. Much of that was on the offensive side of the ball. Stubbornness, lack of development at quarterback, poor schemes. At no point when Pruitt was trying out Jared Garantano for the 50th time did we say, you know, Pruitt's familiarity with the South is going to be the difference in whether or not this guy actually figures it out at quarterback. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, I am a Stars Matter enthusiast. I will continue to bang the drum that with Ari Wasserman, the phrase that he has coined, there is more truth in it than there are a whole lot of other narratives in college football. And while it is not a catch-all, it is still a great place to be able to start. I am not going to sit here and tell you that Alabama can compete for national championships only getting a handful of four-star recruits in each class like Washington, okay? If Alabama's sitting there with a recruiting class that's at 25 to 30, we've got issues, okay? This, this thing will not go. This will not work in the way that many are hoping it will at this current juncture. I acknowledge that in the SEC, it is different, and DeBoer has to adapt to that. What do we always say? Well, what is it? Maybe the number one principle of the Saturday Down South podcast: um, adapt or die, and don't let friends don't let your friends bet on preseason Heisman odds. Correct. Number one is is adapt or die, and that one is locked in, etched in stone. But two, I might have to tweak that a little bit because your boy's been kind of hurt the last couple of years, and that's a subject that we're going to dig into at some point during the offseason. Mm -hmm. It is a principle that to some are just words, but to others, it is truly a way of life. Even my guy, I'm going to do something that hurts my soul, Will. I'm going to do something that, that that pains me. Joe Moorhead, my dude, I'll always yeah. go to bat for Joe. He is someone that even he, if he could look back on the things that worked and the things that didn't work at Mississippi State, he would admit that he did not adapt to his surroundings well enough before they, in his words, threw his Yankee ass out of there. Okay. They did, in fact. Unfortunately, he saw the future with that quote. Yeah, I think it's a drag, but through just sound, is a better verb. I guess drag is a better visual, but you get what you get. What I'm saying, he admitted after that first year, and I remember talking to him at media days, and 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 he's like, "Yeah, probably shouldn't have gone so public with my bravado about the the spot on the mantle for for Nick Fitzgerald's Heisman and telling guys that they need to learn their ring size." He didn't adapt to a place that's like. Hey, uh, guy, I, I get that you're pumped and you're fired up, but we're just trying to have our second winning season in SEC play in the 21st century. If you can do that, th then let's talk. Then right. let's build this thing. DeBoer has shown in a variety of circumstances that he knows how to adapt. If you have 
taken a drink every time that you have heard someone describe him as a quote winner, mm-hmm. you're pretty hammered right now. In my opinion, that plays a little bit better than saying it as an attribute for a draft eligible quarterback who hands the ball off 32 consecutive times in a monumental game against Penn state. I do actually think that there is a world in which JJ McCarthy is a franchise quarterback in the NFL, but him and his role at Michigan is not the eval and, and, and him doing all those things as a winning quarterback. is not the eval, the eval that I would really want to fall back on if I'm an NFL GM, but that's a different discussion for a different time with the He didn't build Sioux Falls. What? What do you mean, Connor? He wanted a place that didn't have this great prestigious. Tri- oh, actually, it did. Bob Young built Sioux Falls. That's the winningest coach in program history. He right. won one NAIA Division II title in program history during his 22 seasons there. Bob Young was huge for building Sioux Falls. And then DeBoer took over a successful program and elevated it by winning not one, not two but three titles in the five seasons that he spent there. That is where you can miss me with all these Brian Harson comps that are out there. Those comparisons blow chunks. Harson, I jump in. Go ahead. And here's where I jump in. So let me go back to, uh, it's so funny because we could have done this in a different way and our points would have completely linked up again. Right? So I was talking about, um, I was talking about Sexton, how this is a masterclass. Right? And the reason why I started seeing that is the record. Right, 104 and 12. Every single person, 104 and 12, 104 and 12, 104 and 12. That's PR. That's PR at the end of the day. Because to me, right, if you look up, you know, if you go on sports reference, if you go to any of these like sites that we actually use to do our jobs, Sky has only coached 46 games at the actual college football level that we consider it. And the reason why I say this, I did some research on the NAIA as uh, a division. Uh, where you have 24 scholarships. Um, Sioux Falls is a school. Do you know what the enrollment of Sioux Falls is? 6,048. That's not what the internet says. Um, it says it is 1,300. Um, I was close. Within 5,000. Right. No, and that's about what I thought. That's about what I thought. <laughs> I, you said, knowing you, I thought you like read an article. So I was like, hold on, am I right? Let me, anyway, so, so. 1300, right? I went to Hoover High School. We just talked about Jeremy Pruitt. Hoover High School is twice the size of that university. Um, they've had two NFL players in the history of their program. He did coach one of them, tackle is playing for the Chargers. Um, coaching salaries at that level. I did some research on some of their coaching boards and guys were saying they make about the same as substitute teachers, that some of them make more money being high school football coaches. And to once again, compare it to Hoover at my high school, you were playing on ESPN. Our coach was making 150K. Um, this job is smaller than my high school. Um, pretty objectively. Is that fair? No, not fair. You're, okay. You were still competing against Division II programs across college football. I'm not sitting here saying mm-hmm. that winning Division II titles is the same thing as winning, uh, you know, even a, an FCS championship. Okay. Not, not, right. saying, not saying that. What I would push back on is that even if Brian Kelly, at the time when he's hired at at LSU or you can go back to the time when Brian Kelly was hired at Notre Dame do you think his all-time wins were brought up at any point and do you think Mm-mm. at any point the Grand Valley State part of the resume was was Mm-mm. referenced that he's one of the winningest coaches and that we've ever seen because it, it was and that's a part it? of it 
It, yeah, I did you, not read. It was a foot, and this is exactly my point. It was a footnote for Brian Kelly. If we put the same amount of emphasis on Brian Kelly's his, his success at Division Two as we are with DeBoer, Brian Kelly is going for his third national championship. That is how that press release would have been phrased. The stat that has been put with DeBoer the entire time is not what it was with Brian Kelly. It was not what he did in Notre Dame. It was not what he did at Cincinnati. It was not what he did before that in college football, the college football that we know that we turn on ESPN and we see it. DeBoer's number one bullet point has been his wins, the vast majority of which have not been in the college football that we know and acknowledge to be college football. You'll notice that I haven't brought up his 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 full record. There is mm-hmm. a reason for that because mm-hmm. there is nuance to this and there is more than just what he did 15 years ago that got him to this point where he right. is now the head coach at the most prestigious program that there is in college football based on based on success, based on rings and those things. And if you give me the Michigan win total, then we're going to have a different discussion about hardware stores and opponents in the 1940s. Right. Here is here is my point because I still got some convincing to do. Fair, I still got a little bit of convincing to do. That, yes. that makes- is it on this topic though? Because I actually have something for the other one too. I don't want to get too far off to where we're like going. Fire away, fire away. Okay, so where I was going with that is okay. So we start with how it's presented, right? And that's that's where it goes in like the Jimmy Sexton thing. I mean, Adam Schefter is tweeting this guy's record, and I'm sitting there immediately going, "Well, that doesn't make any sense, right?" Because I went and saw, you know, he was at Fresno State two years. One of those was COVID shortened, so it was a six game season, right? So. Functionally, this guy has three years of college football experience. Like, we can talk about the NIL, fine. If you want to make your full case, the full case that this guy deserves the Alabama job based on his NIA stuff, go for it. This guy is coached in two postseason bowl games, right? And here's the part of it that, and this is why I say I want to reference what you just said. He has not been anywhere so far where talent matters. Um, acquiring talent matters, okay? If you look at how his teams were built, okay, Pretty much every piece, except for Michael Penix Jr., talking about every defensive starter almost, the entire offensive line, uh, the running back, I believe, was also not there. He did not bring in any of those guys. They were there, and he maximized them. Now, there's two quick elements to this. Um, This roster at Alabama has been maximized. He's not going to maximize it more than Nick Saban did. We talked about this was an 11-win team that should have been a three- or four-loss team. Um, and where I go with that is, and I want to address something that you just said specifically, because that's why this is fascinating. Let me read you Washington's consensus average for recruiting classes really quick, starting with 2018, way before he got there. They were 16th in 2018, under like 16th again, 15th in 2020. Okay. Scandal breaks out. Da, 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 da. Now we start to get into the DeBoer era. Okay. 36. Okay transitional class. Boom. Now we're going to call this the chaos year where DeBoer doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's 80. Okay. Boom. Here are DeBoer's, DeBoer's two classes, 27, 31. He got worse at recruiting than Jimmy Lake, like, or than like significantly. Um, of their five four-star players in Washington, the cycle, they got none of them. Would you rather have the four and eight season or the national championship season? Huh? Would you rather have the Jimmy Lake season that was four and eight, or would you rather have going to a national championship and winning the best conference in college? What was considered the best conference in college football this year by running the table through all of it, beating Oregon twice, doing so in the Pac-12 championship, doing so with a roster that, look, I'll get to that part of it in a second. But the, the, the notion of like, well, he doesn't have experience coaching 
at, at the college level. And that's why it's, it's such a big risk. So then like you can say the same thing about Urban Meyer before Florida, you can say the same exact thing. Urban Meyer, three years of college, uh, four years in Bowling Green. Yes. Four years, two years a piece, two years a piece. Mm -hmm. So two years a piece, Fresno state, two years a piece, uh, uh, Washington. Okay. So, so that's the same, that is the same thing. And if you look at those recruiting classes and say, well, he didn't necessarily elevate the recruiting. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. And, but also what did he do by the time that he left there? Well, he had a number one overall draft pick. You're going to look at this yep. NFL draft and the way that it is played out with, with the way, with the way that it's going to play out with Washington. And you're going to see all these guys coming off the board in the first half. And I argued last year, I'm like, look, mm -hmm. I love that Washington's got all these guys coming back and it's going to make for a really fun team in 2023. They're not going to advertise that from a PR standpoint and say, we're going to brag about the lack of NFL guys that they had that year because they had all of those guys coming back. And a lot of those guys that would have been maybe fringe type draft picks last year were elevated in year two. And that's why you're going to see so many of these guys come off the board. So right. it's a different discussion as it relates to, okay, well, yeah, Jimmy Lake signed this recruiting class that was doing this. Those guys weren't doing anything in 2019 and 2020, 21. And if you look at the the amount of like, there are probably there's five guys on that roster that were there when he got there that you're trying, you're trying to maximize. You're trying to figure out a way to, to maximize. Right. Mm -hmm. Are we pretending like Alabama's the, I, I will wholeheartedly disagree with you that Alabama has been maximized as a team that had the number one team in, in terms of talent composite in the country that had mm -hmm. so many different holes, did not have the development at receiver, did not have the development on the offensive line, had too many areas in the middle of that defense where you're saying to yourself, my God, some of the routes that they're taking, being able to pursue the run. Alabama was not a team that had maximized its potential this past year. I don't think that this was, oh, they got everything possibly out of them. I look at what DeBoer did at Washington in those two years, the amount of guys that he elevated that when they get their name called in the NFL draft from a team that was runner up to win a national championship, that mm -hmm. will say my career took off because of what happened when those guys showed up. Well, I will say that is a little bit of a slippery slope because then we start to have some really hard conversations about Nick Saban, which I don't think is accurate. I mean, I don't think that Nick Saban missed on a bunch of hires that caused these guys to not develop correctly. I think they missed on some players. <laughs> I think that Burton is not talented. I think that Bond is not some game-breaking receiver. I think they missed on players. I don't think that Nick Saban systemically failed so many coaching vacancies that there is all this untapped potential at this Alabama team that we saw struggle at all these levels. I just don't think it was a coaching problem or a development problem that Alabama had. I think they honestly had a talent problem. I don't think they had the Jimmys and Joes. When they matched up with Michigan, they got blown off the ball. I don't think it was coaching. But then how could you say it's a talent problem when they have the number one talent class in the composite and then say, oh, well, Jimmy Lake had this class with this mm -hmm. amount of talent and look what they were in the talent composite here, but then say that it doesn't matter for DeBoer. Like, do you get what I'm saying? Like, where are the discrepancies? Yes. yes, I think that's a fascinating conversation that is honestly worth noodling on um, because there's a, it's a really hard answer. I mean, at the end of the day, and I, I literally messaged you this the other day about why, are, why is Alabama look like they don't have all this talent? I would argue that I think over the course of all these cycles, and this is a really interesting, like we just haven't even had this conversation, but it's a really good conversation because, you know, I would argue that I think over the course of this 17 year tenure that Nick Saban has, I think that when guys start get recruited, getting recruited by Alabama, the ratings start to rise a little bit. Fair, very fair. hundred percent. I think that 
the services, the scouting services, when they talk to guys, when they talk to Bama coaches, they're talking up the same guys. And it is good for your career to start to get recruited by and commit to Alabama. I think that a lot of these guys at Alabama, because Nick Saban has always been known as a guy who gets the absolute most out of guys at the college level. We talk about the NFL, guys like Mark Barron and some of these offensive linemen that come in as these monsters and they never get better or bigger. But that's never been the knock on Nick Saban, that he can't guys get guys in the weight room, can't get guys access to coaching, all this different stuff. I genuinely think that over the course of all these different cycles, the recruiting industry has been lulled to sleep. I think that some of the guys that Alabama has on the roster are not as good as we thought they were. But over the course of Nick Saban and his staff's evaluation for talent, all the recruiting services went, well, surely they can't be wrong. Surely Bond and Burton are game breakers. Surely these offensive linemen are monsters, road graders, all this stuff. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, I, I would agree. Let, yeah, let's, okay. So let's, let's, let's bring it back to mm-hmm. kind of the, the discussion about like what he's, what he's being viewed as by, by some, and that that's right. kind of the, the, the recruiting aspect of it that, that is definitely part of this conversation, mm-hmm. but there are people looking at this saying, well, this guy's just going to recruit like Brian Harson. Okay. If you're coming at me with a Brian Harson comp, I w- I would, I would push back with, with saying, show me where he elevated a program because it didn't happen at Boise state where Chris Peterson led five top 15 finishes there. Harson didn't lead one. Harson did not elevate Arkansas State in his lone year that he spent there. Or actually, Arkansas regressed. State. They get everybody for like a year or two. With <laughs> and then eventually they end up at Auburn. That's what Gus did. That's what Freeze did. That's what Harson did. That's what they all end up doing. Yeah. Uh, Butch is probably going to get the Arkansas. Ju- no, it's not going to happen, Auburn fans. So let's not, let's not go down that road. But they – so obviously we know what happened at Auburn, though. He, he did not improve after they paid Gus all that money to, to go away. Mm-hmm. Brian Harson did not adapt or die. He did right. not. We can all agree on that. He didn't mm-hmm. understand how to maximize the transfer portal. He didn't understand that those functions at a place like Auburn mattered to the people that were cutting those checks. And if you act like you're above everything, just because you had a few top 25 seasons at Boise State, buddy, you've got another thing coming. Mm-hmm. Brian Harson could have succeeded at Auburn. There was a path. And yes, it's probably a lot more narrow than others. And if you actually get into the psyche of the way that guy was wired and not understanding that you can't have a one-way street with the transfer portal leading straight out of your program, yes, that path was probably more narrow if he wasn't ever going to open up his own mind. Now, hold on, Connor. He got Finley, all right? So, Did Finley commit to – yeah, okay, that was Harson. God, that was Harson. That's Game changer. Say he had a really will. nice season at Texas State, too, by the way. Yeah, he, no, he really did, actually, yeah. Yeah, happy for TJ Finley. Um, but instead, this, this world that we live in of adapt mm-hmm. or die, Brian Harson did not adapt. He died. Right. Kalen DeBoer is not Brian Harson. I don't know who needs to hear this, right. but some are treating a 25-3 and market Washington like nothing. And mm-hmm. they forget the four-win season that Jimmy Lake had and – the fact that they were losing to an FCS team in 2021 to open that year. And two years later, they are competing for a national championship. DeBoer used the portal. Yeah, but the development part, that's that's the key. The part that you brought up before with mm-hmm. a bunch of these guys, with Adunze, with Polk, with McMillan, with, with Montanu, with Trice, all these guys that could be in the first half of the draft, they exploded after DeBoer's staff got there. And obviously... Dylan Johnson, who was a cast off at Mississippi State with the the awkward Mike Leach exit and the way that played out in his scheme. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Michael Penix Jr., which is very well documented. And if you tell me that DeBoer just rode the Michael Penix wave, train, whatever you want to call it, you have not been paying attention because right. you can go back and look at one of your quarterbacks for those New Orleans Saints. I don't know if he's still on the roster, actually. Jake Hayner. What did Jake Hayner do? Oh, man. 
Jake Hayner led Fresno State to its best season ever with mm-hmm. DeBoer as the OC. And people forget that. And obviously, we know that it's going to be Ryan Grubb doing the play calling at Alabama. He's been more or less a package deal with DeBoer for most of the last 15 years. Not exclusively, but those guys have worked pretty synonymously with one another. Grubb is going to have to do some adapting with Alabama's current personnel. Because as it stands, it is nothing like Washington's. It is just not. Throwing the ball 40 times a game works when you have the best peer passer in America, along with three NFL-ready receivers. Bama doesn't have either of those two things. It is fascinating to think about how Grubb can adjust with Jalen Milrow, who announced that he is indeed staying at Alabama. And Mm -hmm. also, we've seen Isaiah Bond and Amari Nyblack both hit the portal, which means that Kobe Prentice is the lone returning Bama receiver who had 150 receiving yards in a 14-game season. Okay, Mm -hmm. So think about that. Very different from that standpoint. But also something worth remembering. When Grubb and DeBoer were both assistants running the Fresno State offense in 2017-2018, they went 22-6, and had the best two-year stretch in program history. They were actually throwing the ball only 31 times a game, and they were in the middle of the pack nationally. So this isn't like, oh, we're we're Mike Leach air raid. We have to throw the ball 40 times a game. If we don't Mm -hmm. get this exact personnel, our scheme falls apart. DeBoer adapts. When you spend a decade as a coordinator at small schools like he did, you pick up on some things. And by the way, even if you want to go back and look at his final year at Eastern Michigan, they were 13th in the country in scoring his offense. It fueled the, the program's best season in three decades. People aren't going to talk about that. That's not part of the PR spin that DeBoer is going to get, but it's part of why he's been able to get to this point, why he elevates everywhere that he has been. That's not going to be at the top of his resume. Washington's at the top of his resume. It is wild to me, wild to me, that some are so impressed or rather unimpressed, I should say, with DeBoer's resume, even though he went 4-0 against Dan Lanning. Right. Steve Sarkeesian mm-hmm. did that these past two seasons. And here's a dirty little secret. Dirty little secret. Maybe it's going to kind of make all this sound like, Connor, you just totally took – you just crippled your take. That, that's all you did here by, by saying it this yet, at the end. But hear me out, and I'll let you tee off after this. To quote Billy Bean one more time. Oh, yeah. Or really to quote Moneyball. That's that's what this is all about. You don't have a crystal ball. You can't look at a kid and predict his future any more than I can. Mm-hmm. DeBoer's not a kid. He's a man. He's 49. His birthday's a week before Nick Saban's. Yeah, crazy. Don't know how that ended up happening. Mm-hmm. But with these hires, I am so sick. So sick. And I'm not just talking to you here. I'm talking to a yeah, lot of sure. people out there. I am so sick of everyone assuming that they know what awaits. They're either a slam dunk, mm-hmm. a grand slam, a home run, or they're a whiff. Someone should say they're a bunt. Uh, Michael Scott was the only one who came up with that. Let's yeah. let's bring back bunts, not in like what a about literal sack sense. fly. We never get any sack fly hires, all right? Yeah, this this hires like a, a like a routine ground out to second. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, bunting itself like as a, a a basic principle, I am woefully against. I hate it. I am more money ball. Um, in that standpoint, but that's mm-hmm. not what we're talking about. The amount of splashy hires like Tom Herman, like Scott Frost, like Jimbo Fisher, mm-hmm. can't miss hires, can't miss hires. It's a reminder that nobody is destined for success. And in the same vein, Lance Leipold, Chris Klein, Kalen DeBoer, they were not destined for failure just because they took the atypical non-division one route to get here. Once upon a time, Jim Trussell did that at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Talk about needing to figure things out at a big time program. Yeah, you got roots in the state. 
I don't think you're recruiting out of the same pool at Youngstown that you are at Ohio State. It is very, very different. It Mark is, Stoops just pounding the table right now because you know he's a listener. <laughs> don't talk about those Youngstown three stars. To be fair, Stoops really swooped in. It was very hard for me to say swooped and not stooped in. He swooped in once Trestle was out post tattoo mm-hmm. gate. And that's why all those three stars from Youngstown were Stoops is for the taking. So a little bit different, but I agree with you. It is too simple for me to get onto a microphone and say, get a football coach that knows how to win. Cool. Great. Right. But it does feel like Alabama's approach to this vacancy, this unprecedented one of one vacancy in Tuscaloosa was trying to fall back on that as much as possible. Get someone who has shown he knows how to understand and manage a locker room in a variety mm-hmm. of places. Get someone who understands how to manage a staff, how to make the right hires, how to associate himself with the right people and be a steadying presence. It's going to be an uphill climb for Kalen DeBoer to establish himself in recruiting. But in the NIL slash portal world, whatever you want to call it, there are Mm -hmm. so many more ways to build a roster. And so often there is a highest bidder element that comes along with the business part of the eval. Once you have that figured out of, I want this guy. So does this school, this school, and this school. That's where that's going to come into play. And we know that Alabama is not going to be lacking in that. I like DeBoer's chances. I like his chances. And while I wouldn't bet the house on him succeeding, what I sure as heck won't do is default to some outdated premise that's more of a convenient fallback, a little bit of a narrative, a little bit of a a comfort, something to yell at, something to get upset at, than it is an actual barrier to entry. Right. Go off. Absolutely. And and I think that, again, as I me start to you know mature i think that these conversations become a lot more a lot less theater and a lot more interesting just exchange of information because i'm i'm right there with you i don't think he's gonna be a failure i don't think he's gonna be a flop i don't think he's gonna be any of that i think well okay let me ask you this question before i say anything what is success post saban at alabama winning a title success is winning a title success Mm -hmm. is winning a title and consistently being in the 12 team playoff i i think if you win a ring you've done your job that, that sounds uh, like we talked about with the Harbaugh thing. If you show up and you are able to win your program a national championship, yeah, things can happen, sanctions and stuff, and you can have a fall from grace a la Les Miles at LSU. But I do think that if you win your program a national championship, it is really hard to turn around and say, you didn't do what you set out to do. So to me, yes, it is win a championship, consistently be competing for national championships in the 12-team playoff. How quickly? Hmm. It's a tough question to answer after the coach just won a national championship in year nine. Okay. And we were all wrong about Harbaugh, by the way. That's the thing. Nobody, For a nobody, fan base that had not won in a hundred years. Yes. He yes. did win in year nine. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the crazy thing too, is think about all the takes about Harbaugh and as splashy of a hire as it was. If I had presented the options in some sort of Twitter poll and I said, mm-hmm. Well, he's going to win a national championship within his first three years. He's going to be gone after five years, having never gotten them to even a Big Ten championship. He's going to be mid and he's going to last for seven years. Or he's going to win a national championship in year nine. The last option is the least popular, like yep. without question. So we're, we're even wrong about that. So yes, 
I've done I've done a breakdown. And sorry, this is a very long winded answer, but I, I, I have thought about this. And it, there is a timeline. There, there, mm-hmm. there is a timeline. I do think there is for the SEC, and especially there will be for Bama, where the sense of urgency will be different because of obviously who he's replacing. The amount of coaches that can even win an SEC title after being on the job for four years is way less than you think. And mm-hmm. it sure as heck is not at places like Alabama. So I'm going to say that that is, that is the mark of win a national championship within four years. And if you can win one after that, I mean, you still have a chance to be able to meet those expectations. But that, to me, would be succeeding at Alabama. This is going to be a fast – this is going to be a conversation that we continue to have for years, probably. Unless he wins one in year one. But I think, you know, I think Harbaugh is such a great example because this is a guy who is from Michigan – played at Michigan, had success at the NFL, had success all these different le- levels, and still he was a Miss Rutgers bunny field goal during, you know, a bad season away from potentially being let go. And like you said, you know, way before he got to year nine, okay? That is not a program that just came from the resurgence of their program. Their expectations were not way up here. You know, they were coming from Rich Rod, Rich Rod Brady Hope, all that, and they were still fed up with Michigan man Jim Harbaugh and it was just a little sliding doors moment. So I think that's that's fascinating. And again, the Saban, you know, look you in the eye and tell you're going to win a championship before you leave here. Um, I think that's where they came from. And, and, and another thing that we talked about that I'm not going to shy away from or now move the goalpost on is that this hire right after the guy is often very hard to beat. And I think that he will be judged a lot more harshly than if he were to fail the next hire. I think we've seen that over and over again. So I think four years, I think, is a, a logical and real thing depending on how the year go, years go before that. If he is seven and five, it's not going to get three more years. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so where well, I'm going with that, you know, let me go back to your point. You Wait, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. If, if you had been asked expectations for Brian Kelly when he starts, yeah. he's taking that job because he wants to win a national championship. What is success yeah. for Brian Kelly back when, when he got that job at the end of 2021? What would you have said? So Brian Kelly is a couple of things. First off, remember, Brian Kelly took over a program that was in the dump. They had 37 players. Yes. So I think that coming from the Kosho dumpster fire is a dream situation because you come in there and you go, hey, I'm not going to embarrass you. And the defense this year didn't exactly hold up their part of that bargain. They embarrassed us a little bit, but there was a Heisman. And so point being, Brian Kelly, because of his resume. Now, this is why I was so against the Brian Kelly PR, because the only thing Brian Kelly had working against him was PR. People just don't like him. I get it. I didn't like him for a while. This year actually kind of sold me. But great question, because he said he was there to win a national title. For me, a rational LSU fan, I would say so far he has been above even what I thought he could be or what I what I hoped for him to be. Now, crazy LSU fans down in Santa Mall, maybe they think, you know, two years, get out of here, da, da, da. But I think a rational LSU fan would know this program was very nearly about to get kicked off the cliff and not be what they've been for 20 years. I, I, I would say that, yes, and I, I agree with that. I, I think that there's still a just win one, win one. If Brian mm-hmm. Kelly does that, we will look back on his, on his time in the bayou and say he did what he set out to do. And you have to be able to look at it from a success and mm-hmm. say that it was a success, his time there. And that might sound too pass fail. And I try and bring a little bit of nuance to this conversation. It's it's obviously never that black and white, mm-hmm. but I do think that in certain cases, like an LSU, like an Alabama, we do talk like that because we have seen it. And I do think that that's a fair thing to be able to offer up where there are probably not more than five programs in college football that I would say that about. 
Yes, and, and again, this is all just such good nuanced conversation because at the end of the day, it, it depends on how the years went, right? So for year one, you beat Nick Saban. I mean, so you do that. He was a guy who couldn't beat Nick Saban. He was the guy who would never compete in the SEC. Wins his division. I'm like, buddy, that's an extra two or three years out of me because I didn't think you would be going from 37 players to beating Nick Saban winning the West, right? Then year two, well, the defense is atrocious. But again, LSU is not an offensive team ever, okay? They win two Heismans in five years. When Jaden Daniels plays the way he does and it makes me happy and I enjoy watching it, that's different. If it was a boring football team that was just like one of those Notre Dame teams that made you want to just watch paint dry instead, that maybe would have been a little bit different. You know, if the defense was better, but the brand was boring, I don't know. So I'm sitting here after two, hitting two, uh, what's it called? Like hitting two objectives that I would say compete with Nick Saban. We went one and one against Nick Saban, right? I would say it would be great. I would never assume go in the Heisman. You need to go in the Heisman, but that puts some money in your bank. You know, so yeah. Um, so so back to the board. The example that, uh, you gave is a very interesting one in Urban Meyer, and I, I love that because Urban Meyer is a guy who we saw him turn into a psycho before our eyes. We saw him turn into a sicko. We saw him turn into go from you know kind of a not like maybe like a little bit of a smarter than you got guy, like a scheme guy, to a down in the dirt, nitty gritty, cheating Paul recruiter. Right now, that being said, that burned him out. I mean, he couldn't do that for more than a couple of years. And I would say, and this is not, it's, I'm not going one-to-one, -one, but I'm just going to be fair here. That was 20 years ago. And remember his big thing was he couldn't tolerate losses. You got to be able to tolerate losses going forward. I mean, the way that he won at Florida couldn't happen today because we don't even know what happened after a regular season loss. And when I mean, you even watching the, the PR Swamp Kings documentary, they're all horrified to lose. To be adapt or die now is not to have that approach. It's to say, okay, it sucks to lose, guys. Hate that feeling. Learn from it. Let's move on. A guy like Urban Meyer would be horrible today. Does that make sense? That's why he's not coaching today. I agree. I mm -hmm. agree. They're, 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 the losing part of this is something that could absolutely define DeBoer. And it, and it brings up one last thing that I, that I wanted to mention here. Mm -hmm. I, I said a couple of months ago when A&M was reportedly set to hire Mark Stoops, we thought that for like, what, two, three hours. Yeah. I thought that it would be a weird fit because of how he recruited in Texas, but that he could have a path to success. I do think the A&M vacancy being filled by Stoops is a totally different conversation than what we're talking about with Bama, with the success that they have had. Stoops being at one school for 11 years that had such unbelievably low expectations when he took over and taking mm -hmm. over the program that just paid $77 million because it had such incredibly high expectations, even though it didn't necessarily have the blueprint, it didn't necessarily have the path to be able to get there. It would have made me question how he would have handled seven and five or eight and four, because that's not what he would be brought in there to do. Obviously I think with DeBoer, he's not showing up being like, wait a minute, Alabama fans are upset. If you go nine and three, what, what are right. you talking about? Like, yeah, they've had 13 consecutive 11 win seasons. They're going to be pretty pissed if you don't get there. Like, just right. he knows that. He's very, very well aware of that. Let's also remember something else. We talk about handling losses. Yeah. The 12-team playoff could not be coming at a better time for Kalen DeBoer. Okay? You can have a 10-2 and two regular season where you miss out on the SEC championship, yep. but you make the playoff and maybe get to the Final Four. You maybe get to a national championship berth or something like that. Yep. That could help him. If there is a comp to taking over for Saban, it's Tom Osborne. Like that's that's the one that I think is, and it's not a perfect comp. This is still a one of one situation, but that's the closest that I can think of. Osborne went he he, he went out with the the shared national title in '97, so he got the the moment that we we assumed Saban was going to have, but 
very much felt like they're going out on top, right? That right. that was the conversation with Tom Osborne. That's Man, the conversation. That 97 team. title is doing some narrative heavy lifting for two different programs. <laughs> it's, Michigan it's, and, yeah. It set the stage for a lot of weirdness and a lot of interesting debates uh, in college football over, over the course of, the, yeah, basically since it's happened the last 25 years. But we know what happened after that. Frank Solich takes over in 98, and I've already mm-hmm. documented how that's really the – if you want to talk about, like, why Nebraska seems like a cursed team, it's because of the firing of Frank Solich. Like, that that mm-hmm. entire thing and the way that it all went down where he's on – it didn't – by the way, it didn't do him any good that he was on Osborne's staff for, what, 15 years? And yeah. then he leads him to a national title berth in 2001. Eric Crouch wins the Heisman. And all all that happened after was just downhill. Seven yeah. and seven. They have their first week not in the AP poll, a streak that was 348 weeks in the AP poll. Yes, crazy. So when that happens, obviously he goes into that 2003 season on the hot seat. Didn't matter that he had all these Nebraska ties. He went nine and three. They're kind of like, hey, we're done with you. There was discourse about that, but ultimately they were Mm -hmm. done with him. I do also wonder about the timing of when he took over. Okay, Mm -hmm. and this is the point I wanted to bring up. He takes over in 98. That's the first year that we actually had an official BCS championship. So in a weird way, the sport got more exclusive for the elite. So when you're not on that stage and you're not in the game, that's called the BCS national championship. And people recognize that maybe that magnitude is felt in a different sort of way. Whereas the game that you're playing in, Oh, maybe it's going to decide a national championship. Maybe it's not. But having the stakes known going in and being on the outside looking in for all but one of those seasons, it changes kind of how you're viewed. But with DeBoer, that could help him. It could help him that all of a sudden we're going to have different conversations about coaches and there's going to be mm-hmm. more ways to treat success. And hey, what's the year that let's say you have a Washington regular season, but you lose in the first round of the college football playoff. We're going to view that the way that we viewed Michigan last year right like there there are going to be different conversations about what success actually is and in a strange way the pr machine could help him in that regard it definitely could but i am not as concerned about and i guess if there's one point that i want to hammer home here i am not as concerned about deboer and the lack of southern roots and the way that i am him being the guy after the guy that is still the biggest hurdle for me that he's going to have to overcome and not just because I, I think he knows what those expectations are. I think he's well aware of them. And even if it takes, you know, a close win to an unranked team for him to have that set in, I do still think that it's more about just being the guy after the guy that is so unbelievably tough. And the biggest thing that Kalen DeBoer willingly took on, but he is going to be working against as long as he is there. Yeah. And another good point that comes off of that is because of the expanded playoff. No one really knows what success is at this point, right? I mean, yep. if you are, let's say you're Ryan Day and you win enough playoff games to get you to the Final Four, is that success? You, you, we don't even know what that feels like for you. If you beat two good teams on the way, have you moved up or down? I think that this is that's another really good point, which is that in the four-team playoff era, you're right. This would be, if we had done this last year, we had such a track record of Nick Saban winning in the college football playoff. Now, I mean, look... Uh, LSU has two CFP wins for the greatest team of all time. You could get that in a season and pass them. You know what I'm saying? You lose a rivalry. You you're, you have a two loss regular season. You lose a yep. rivalry game. The game. Let's say let's bring up the Ryan Day example. He loses yeah. again to Michigan next year, and Ohio State's ten and two. Yeah, I know, crazy, right? 
Ohio State's ten and two. Let's say that they get left out, and it's like Oregon and Ohio, Oregon and Michigan are playing for a Big Ten championship or something like that. What happens then if Ryan Day beats three consecutive top ten teams to be able to get to a national championship game? Yep. Are we still saying that Ryan Day is this failure? Because that's a whole lot different than saying, oh, we're going to play it in New Year's Six Bowl. So those conversations are so much more fluid, and we almost have to – it's going to be really hard to to try and like lump in those pre-12-team playoff results, and especially as it relates to the postseason, and try and say, like, oh, well, he's done this and this many years in a row or something like that because – there will be a lot more opportunities for you to be able to gain some of that ground back instead of being on the outside looking in. Yes, and also the chance for a rematch. I mean, if Ryan Day plays Michigan a, a second time in the, the same point. season and beats them, the first matchup didn't matter, and it's even funnier that Michigan did what they did. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Um, I, I will say this, too, you know, kind of going all the way back. One thing like about this whole process that's interesting to me, so just continuing to compare DeBoer to other coaches and other styles and all because he's just so, I mean, I think to this point, I'm not going to say he's one of one necessarily. That's why the Urban Meyer stuff is so interesting because almost no matter how you how you split it, DeBoer has done something that very, very, very few people have done in any era. You know what I'm saying? So there really is not a direct comp. Now, I would say like this just to be an interesting part of that, right? So Greg Byrne and his hires, right? Have you seen the other head coaches he's hired? Nate Oates. That's all I got. Well, that's all I got. Yes. So Nate Oates, <laughs> Nate Oates is... This is a great hire. I'll give him that. You know, say what you will about scandal, all that, but great hire elevated the program to obviously probably the best place they've been, definitely in our lives and maybe ever, right? So Nate Oates is a great hire. The two football coaches he hired was Dan Mullen at Mississippi State. Um, great hire, especially for Mississippi State. Uh, he was a guy who, with scheme, could you know overcome talent. Cool. Uh, they peaked out over there. He got to Florida. He flamed out because he couldn't recruit. Um, worked out for hire. Mississippi State, though. Worked out for Mississippi State. No, worked out for Mississippi State. Yeah. Um, just couldn't recruit. Uh, second guy hired Arizona, Rich Rod. Rich Rod, pretty much the same coach as Dan Mullen. Can't recruit. Great scheme guy. Um, didn't go well at Arizona. They're fine. I'd push. It didn't end well at Arizona. We'll go back. They had Khalil Tate on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, they had a good season for sure. Um, but I don't think that's the barometer for success at Alabama. Um, I mean, that, I think that that's a little bit different, right? Yeah. Like when you're hiring to play, I mean, look at what they've done recently. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that you can elevate a program past that. So all I'm saying is he has a type, right? Just like, you know, back in the day, back in the day, right? If you were at a bar with your buddies and a certain, you know, type of girl walked by and your buddies would say, that's you, Kalen DeVore, that's you for Burn. All right. That's you. That is a guy who schemes you, doesn't really recruit. And we've seen those guys at these higher levels. We've seen Rich Rod at Michigan. We've seen Dan Mullen at Florida, and we've seen them come into those jobs with similar resumes that similarly qualified them for those teams. Now, Rich Hodge is a little bit different, right? He At the West Virginia stuff, he'd already gotten there. Now, you could have made that argument that he was similar at West Virginia, right, because he had gotten this small program. But that's that's kind of my the interesting part of all this to me is, like I said, how do we project that? What does success look like? And what does the DeBoer kind of brand and staple look like at Alabama? And what I, where I finally was going to wrap around with Urban Meyer is if this is successful, we are going to watch a person become a sicko before our eyes because that's the difference. So when it's not like, okay, there's a reset and the SEC is down 
and we're doing all this stuff, kind of like a 2015, 2016 type vibe, like the way that Kirby Smart came in in a way, right? Where it was like, yeah, you got Alabama, but everyone else is kind of rebuilding, like LSU, Auburn are kind of down. We're doing all this. It's more about like, okay, now Kirby Smart has his people in place. Now Brian Kelly has his people in place. Steve Sarkeesian has his people in place. Brent Middles has his people in place. So, and this goes all the way around to your point about staffing. I have never been more locked in and fascinated to a staff as I ever have, because when you compare him to, you know, and, and I just want to quickly go back around to, we have, or we are completely on this 100% the same page about being from the North, being from wherever does not matter. I've said that about Brian Kelly, said it about Mike Elko. I think Mike Elko is a great hire for them. Look at they brought in an offense. You know, those guys, I think, I think they're building it the right way. It's not about locality. What it is about, and funny enough, even though Brian Kelly and DeBoer are so different as far as their resume, I think their solution might be the same, which is, you know, in the last pod, I was joking about Brian Kelly making it into kind of a joker a bit that he hired all these people from Louisiana. Frank Wilson is that guy for Brian Kelly. Everybody said Brian Kelly's a lazy recruiter. He's on the golf course. He can't recruit the South. Da, da, da. Frank Wilson can recruit the South. So the answer is going to, or the, the question is going to be the quality of people that DeBoer surrounds himself with, right? Nick Saban was recruiting at the highest level in America, right? I mean, over the last, I'm any year, it was guys rise and fall and he would be right there. Saban's still going to be around. I'm not discounting that. He's going to, you know, introduce the board of the coaches. He's going to be able to, and I mean the high school coaches, because that's what's really important. And that can fast track the board in a way that other guys that aren't from here haven't been. I mean, if you haven't recruited this area, you know, you do need to go meet high school coaches and that's going to take you a year or two. That Saban is going to help him a ton there. I, I will say the whole Saban's going to be hands-on. Don't do, put too much stock in that. You don't really want Saban to be that hands-on because we've seen how that's gone with uh, legends in other places. You want Saban to keep the boosters in line, exactly what you said. I think that's a really good note. And you want him to make those relationships and get out the way because you do not want Nick Saban doing the Pat Riley or the Larry Bird and just moving closer and closer to your team every time something goes wrong. And so uh, point being with that, I want to see who these psychos on this staff are. I want to see the names that come to the forefront. I want to see, because you're right. He brought over a lot of great coaches from Washington. The O-line coach. Oh, my gosh. Like I said, I think he could turn this whole thing around regardless of talent. Offensive line, I'm so bullish about it immediately. Fix that need. Uh, talking about receivers, same deal. Oh, my gosh, these receivers are in the gutter. And there are certain positions. Uh, you're right. Offensive line, not developing those guys. Receivers, ugh, right? So that's going to – and then the scheme, you know, we could talk about Tommy Reese, and it all goes into that guise of it's we're all scared to criticize Saban. Tommy Reese, I don't think, is near divorce level. I think he is like sniffing divorce shoes in terms of as a as a game planner, as a as a guy who can build an offense. Devore, like you said, adapted, adapted, adapted. He was not forcing Buckner out there trying to make him take Jalen Bobo's job. He would not be doing that. He is a smart, pragmatic person when it comes to that. So we're seeing a shift. Saban was always a great X's and O's guy, but he was fundamentally a uh, program builder, a recruiter, a guy who could shake hands, get the right guys in places higher. Devore is fundamentally a scheme guy. Just like Mullen, just like Rich Rod, just like, I mean, Nate Oates in a way, because he runs a very specific, you know, three-point three yep. style offense. And kind of similar, right? Not get like, has talent. Not saying he doesn't have talent, but not on the level of Duke. But he beats them with scheme. We're seeing a type that Byrne has, right? And so point being, seeing who he brings in to counteract those weaknesses, seeing who Saban's recommendations for that style of guy is, because I want that from Saban. I want to bring in the guy... Uh, Tosh Lapoy from Oregon or something, get him in here and say, we need you to recruit. I want to bring, not that that guy's even been mentioned, but I'm saying a guy like that, you know, the way that Billy Napier was before he was at Florida, where he was like the guy on the ground that was recruiting. I think that we're going to learn some new names as far as, because they're going to be so much more involved because when Nick Saban calls you, 
you immediately go, oh my God, let me drop everything. Let me talk to Nick Saban. The board doesn't quite have that yet. He hasn't been around long enough to get the, oh my gosh, everyone, listen, I'm going to go commit to you just from a phone call. Someone else has got to build those, those relationships for him because he doesn't have time to do it the old fashioned way. Well, if I told you that Kalen DeBoer has just hired Glenn Schumann as his defensive coordinator. That's a great start. He has not. <laughs> I'm not saying that he has. But I think that we've talked a lot about Alabama's shortcomings in the last few years. Yeah. And a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of the questions that we have had and the frustration, the angst has been scheme. Yeah. An offensive scheme. And what does it look like with O'Brien? And what does it look like this year at time with Tommy Reese where you have this super talented piece of clay that you're trying to mold on offense with Jalen Milrow? And why can't you figure out the right way to be able to make him into something that makes you step back and go, wow, look at what he did with that. And eventually we got to a place where we're like, whoa, look at the development. Look at the way that this has improved. The scheme is going to be huge. And so to say like, ah, he, you know, he's got a type. He just, he hires, he hires like guys who want to default to the scheme. You're hoping that it's the blend of it's the best of both worlds. Right. That's that's what you're ultimately trying to swing for the fences to be able to get. Like you you are when it comes down to that, and it's what Texas did with Sark. You know, mm-hmm. it's, Sark wasn't out here like constantly recruiting the South and constantly recruiting the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he had a great run at USC as as an assistant and was able to work his way up. And ultimately, he got that job as a head coach before things went south for him. But it was at the time hoping that this this resource that you have at your disposal of that brand of that program, hoping that with the right personality, it is the best of those two things. Because when those Mm -hmm. two things are harmonious, it is a beautiful thing to watch. And there are a few programs that have it. Georgia had it with Todd Munkin. Georgia had it in ways that look, I will always say that the job that he did with those offenses, 2021, 2022, especially Mm -hmm. is the stuff that makes me forever impressed by him as an assistant and for Kirby to recognize what he needed to maximize his offense. That's going to be key. It's, it's yeah. going to continue to be key for Alabama in this day and age. I think they they have continued to see that, but yeah, but that I'm was the sauce for Kirby. Kirby is Kirby is the best recruiter. I mean, again, Saban's the best generationally, but as of right, right, right now, Kirby, I mean, those guys were, I mean, you know, you could win 10 games in your sleep with that roster. That roster was. But they couldn't get over the hump. But they couldn't get over the hump. Oh, yeah. And until they figured that. But that was their floor. This Alabama roster did not have a 10-win floor. (laughs) Yeah. No, it didn't. It had other issues. It definitely Mm -hmm. had other issues and other developmental problems. But, yeah, the the ability to hire the the right people, it's it's everything, man. Like, it is so important with with this and and when each of these staff hires kind of trickle out and we're like oh that that's that's worth dissecting in my opinion they're going to have some some big big time heavy lifting to be able to do in the portal i think especially at the pass catcher spots as we documented anything else anything else that you want to hit on with this did i convert you a little bit more so into being more of an acceptor of the path or are you still kind of like eh, i'm not really seeing it as much I think I think I was almost down the middle. Like I don't think the guy's a bum, you know what I'm saying? But I think we're saying almost exactly the same thing, which is it comes right. down to hires. You know, I mean, if you can fill the guys that mask his weaknesses, I mean it's like we always joke about like why this podcast works, right? It's like we fit each other's weaknesses and we can go back and forth and play a little bit of like table tennis in that way. And same deal. If you're gonna hire, you know, that style of coach, you know, you gotta have that. So yeah, I'm I'm super, you know, just interested by how this is gonna go. I, I don't wanna do any projections or anything, but I think something that you hit on is super key. 
going to be the most electric post-spring transfer portal ever because those boys are going to be in place. They are, they are tampering. If you don't start tampering with the day you get there, buddy, you're failing. You need to start cheating today. It's okay as an LSU fan. I'm telling you, start cheating. If you're listening to this podcast, you want to learn about, oh, I'm going to the SEC, Saturday down south, start cheating. That first text to Jalen Milrow has to be, your DMs are open, right? <laughs> <laughs> start, start tampering, get those receivers, man, because they, they need oh, some yeah. bodies. They definitely do. All right, let's kick it to Jim Dunaway. The man has had countless, countless first-person experiences with the GOAT. Obviously, he knows Alabama inside and out. So here's our good buddy, Jim Dunaway. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is my guy, Jim Dunaway. Jim, I'm uh, I'm glad that I'm talking to you after you have showered and slept in your own bed, which is not a given for the types of things that you sign yourself up to do. On Thursday night, you made the very bold decision to stay in the next round offices until Alabama named a head coach. What went into that decision and how fortunate are you that Greg Byrne acted quickly and this wasn't a John Curry situation? Um, in the 90s, I uh, lived on a billboard 82 feet in the air, Iron Bowl weekend, Sunday to Thursday night before the Iron Bowl game, to raise money for cystic fibrosis at Children's Hospital. And I'm terrified of height. Um, I've been buried for two days, six feet underground, and another promotion. What? Um, so, yeah, six feet underground. They had breathing tubes, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. So I've done some quirky things in my life. The, the five days on the billboard, uh, coming back from an Auburn-Georgia game, Iron Bowl week, and to hear the radio announcer say, and tonight should be the coldest night of the year, 18 degrees low, and I was going to be 82 feet in the air, uh, harnessed in for something. Um, so those were crazy things. But for this one, I felt like when Greg Byrne promised me 72 hours that he was going to meet that. And then thinking to myself, well, Jimmy Sexton seems to control a lot of players in this, including Nick Saban. He probably had a heads up before anyone else that Nick was thinking about this. So I felt like it was going to be a good, quick process. I was praying, though, that it would happen on a Friday and uh, not going to the Saturday, Sunday, holiday weekend, and I could still be there or here right now. So it was scary, but I stayed up here, and I, I don't, I'm not one of those that cheat this. I don't, like, go home when nobody's watching. I stayed there, and God bless the 62 of you that were watching me sleep at 3.30 in the morning. I just assume all of you fell asleep on YouTube while streaming it, but we had some amazing numbers, and we had some fun. I worked on my putting a little bit. Uh, ate some bad food and we had a lot of conversations about everything. I was watching it when uh, when we found out that it was that it was going to be Kalen DeBoer, and uh, I think that I deserve partial credit for willing this into existence because my comment of suggesting that you needed to bust out the Ken costume that you had on Halloween, the day that Brian Harson was fired, I I kind of suggested that this needs to happen, and then I think it was within ten minutes. That we got this news so i do i get partial credit oh i, I will i will send you flowers if you'd Thank like you. because that one night uh now that i've gotten older as opposed to being single and in my 20s when i lived on a billboard uh one night up here at this age uh on that green couch with three hours of sleep was not good and i'm not good at mixing beer and bourbon that's our two top choices up here uh, i was saving the vodka for the next day for morning for breakfast so I didn't have a lot of food, so I needed uh, I needed the help. And I found out I get scared 
uh, at night when I'm by myself, like a seven-year-old. So I went to the bathroom and I was like, we're a four-story building. I was like, oh my God, this is freaky. I'm the only person in this building. And then halfway to the bathroom, I thought, man, I hope I'm the only person in this building. So I started putting chairs up in front of doors and everything. But it was great news to hear Kalen DeBoer come down. I'll give my co-host Lance Taylor credit. The day Nick Saban announced it, um, we knew about it. I couldn't get a second confirmation. So we knew about it right when the meeting started at four because I had somebody in the meeting. Um, But I was afraid for some reason he was pulling my leg. So I I wrote back. I said, you're not, I'm about to go with this. You're not going to, you're not going to burn me on this, right? And he's like, and he took about four minutes to answer, I guess, because he's listening to coach. And that's when Chris sent his out, Chris Lowe of ESPN, or we could have been first. And I, I, I thought to myself, wow, he's actually retired this time. And I told Lance and Lance instantly says, man, they need Kalen DeBoer. That was, I, don't, I don't know if they'll do it or not, but what a hire that would be, Kalen DeBoer. So this has been Lance's guy, Lance Taylor, from the second after I told him Nick Saban has just announced his retirement, he wanted Kalen DeBoer. So uh, that's at least one person said that's the top choice. And credit to Lance, too, because I think it was two weeks ago that when you guys were out in Vegas, I'm pretty sure when I went out with you guys, you asked, do you think that, that this is Saban's last year? And I, I said no. I, I think he still has a few years left. And I think you and Ryan both said no, but Lance was like, no, I think this is it. And I was just kind of like, why, why do we why do we suggest that? Why do we float that in the universe? So he definitely has some sort of some sort of sense for this and some sort of feel because Otherwise, I, I I thought we had passed that point. I thought we would have had a little bit more build up to it, but to think that it could play out this way, I mean, yeah, like what's all right. So I guess I should be asking Lance, what's Alabama's twenty twenty four season going to look like? Exactly, but but to use his detective wisdom, uh, you'd have to know how much Nick Saban loves his Lake Burton home, where it was an easy escape from Tuscaloosa via the jet to get him and Terry and everyone on the lake. Um, and then he buys this whole home in Jupiter back in the summer. And Lance instantly says, that's a permanent home. That's not a, uh, that's a permanent residence. That's not a getaway home. And he goes, I think this is going to be the year. So I ended up watching the whole season through that prism of, I don't think it's going to be the last year. This guy's working nonstop, just as hard. But then I would see pictures of Terry Saban and Kristen, the daughter, and she was posting more private moments in the booth and, singing uh, Dixieland Delight, having Terry hanging out the, the box and Brian Denny. And there was just a lot more hugging Terry on, a lot more of the, the, the feeling and behind the scenes that you've never seen before. And as the season went on, I was like, well, we're getting a lot more access to the Sabans than ever before. And I was on the show after the Texas loss, and it's the second time I've done this. And I'm glad I did. I leaned over to him in a commercial break while he was signing a few autographs. And I said, I know I've told you this once before, but I just want to tell you, thank you. And he stops writing. He goes, why? And I said, because I have made five times the amount of money than I was going to make had you not come and be the coach in Tuscaloosa. And I, since you've been there, my kids are 23 and 19. I have built a college fund off of your success. One's about to finish college this year. Um, my son's a sophomore in college this year. My wife has decided to go back to Duke for four years. I said, the only way I'm affording all of this is because you're good at your job. Plus, I've had the time of my life since 2007. 
great memories from Pasadena to Miami. So just thank you. And that was after a loss in Texas. And the way he responded that whole night to me, I was like, this is a different Nick Saban. Now, I didn't think he was retiring. Lance did. But it was a different year, a different mindset for him. I brought up when we did the emergency Saban pod that I remember looking at the way Miss Terry was responding in the press conference after the SEC championship and how much more it seemed like they were really trying to soak things in. And I didn't want to make too much of it at the time, but it's one of those moments that in hindsight, you look back on these things and you're like, ah, man, I guess, I guess we just should have known based on this, this, and this. And it's easy to use revisionist history for some of these things. But I, I wonder this, when do you think Greg Byrne knew that Saban was stepping down? Um, and I don't know this to be fact. I'm just going by on the information that I hear. And it seems like, um, I think Greg has known it was coming very soon. And as the athletic director, he's been working the last, I would say, two to three years since the 2020 championship that, okay, if this is the last year, I've got to be prepared. And just when you get to 70, that was smart. He's Nick is 72 now. So every year he was preparing as if Nick Saban was going to walk in after the last game and retire which turns out this was the year. The writing on the wall, in hindsight, should have been when Kalen DeBoer gave up his old representation sports agent and signed with Jimmy Sexton at some point in the last few months. Now, that's a telltale sign that, you know, they were getting ducks in a row. So I would say I believe Jimmy Sexton knew that it was a real possibility before anyone else and that he knew before he brought Kalen DeBoer on board. Now, I do not know that to be fact, but you know, Nick Saban has made a lot of money for Jimmy Sexton. A lot of big-name clients have signed on with Jimmy Sexton in college football because of Nick Saban. And I think that was a, another sign that we should have seen. And you know, I don't know how it goes. Like, you go to Kalen and say, hey, if you – you drop your representation, come with me. I can get you in the mix if Nick Saban walks away at Alabama. And apparently, Kalen DeBoer says, sign me up for that. James Franklin did the same thing, though. James Franklin did it. Sam Pittman did it. He had really local representation in Arkansas that helped him get the job in the first place. And he right. changes his representation. So it's it's becoming a trend. And, and sometimes we can probably look a little bit too far into it. But to connect the dots to say that Washington's head coach – early in the season would be replacing Nick Saban at season's end. These are the types of things that, gosh, you would have to ha truly have a crystal ball to be able to look into to see that happening. I wonder with the way that this played out with how much money Jimmy Sexton made the likes of Dan Lanning and Steve Sarkeesian, Mike Norvell, those guys, like, I wonder what the wish list really was for Greg Byrne, because if he's the one that's ultimately getting to make this decision, this all important decision of who's going to replace the best, the best coach in college football history, the list had to be there. I, I don't necessarily buy as much that it was just Kalen DeBoer or bust. What right. do you think the, that the takeaway was from that? Um, I've got, I've got friends that I trust a lot that said the first phone call is just a, um, a fishing expedition. You call Kirby smart and you say, Hey, the, you know, 
coaches retiring. I know Georgia is your school. Would there be any interest at all? Did you get there and there's something going on where you'd be more comfortable in Tuscaloosa? And the answer was obviously a quick no. Uh, number one in the country, best roster, all that at his school. Um, I do think probably at that point, pretty confident to say that um, there was a call made to Dabo Swinney, not maybe to offer him the job, just to see if there would be any interest to put him on the list. And when they got a note from that, I think that's when Greg Byrne went to his list. And I believe that that list, and you have to keep in mind, Dabo and Nick are very close, uh, even in the offseason. So at that point, I think it becomes list time. And on the list for Greg Byrne, we had heard all year that whenever Nick Saban stepped down, Mike Norvell would be of interest. Dan Lanning would be of interest. And this is no particular order uh, because of his time in Tuscaloosa and being part of the, the system that is Alabama and Georgia football and how they are built the same way. Um, Sark would be, would be on the list. And then Kalen DeBoer had in two years impressed Greg Byrne to be on the list. So I think those are the four people that were on the list. And the way I'm told that Jimmy Sexton occasionally likes to do things, you, he checks his clients, those four guys, and say, okay, any of you want this job? And if you do, let me know. And when they settle on who, who wants the job, then maybe they communicate back to an AD in this search. And then when the AD decides which one they want, you get a, get a few hours so that Jimmy Sexton can go back and get a raise for Dan Lanning, Steve Sarkeesian, and Mike Norvell. If you saw the way it played out, it played out almost on timing. And on the 49th hour, then the Kalen DeBoer story started to break. It's almost like it's puppets and, and it's orchestrated to music. We get some pretty remarkable access when you consider where we once stood as fans, as consumers of this sport. And sometimes you kind of have to pinch yourself and appreciate it. But the one thing that I would just love, just love just to be a fly on the wall of a Jimmy Sexton situation like that. And just to see how all of this truly goes on behind closed doors and what that messaging is like, because there is so much that, that goes into it. And while I definitely think Kalen Bohr had the credentials to be able to get this job, all of the pieces, the what ifs surrounding it of what could have stood in the way, they are fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. I am uh, I, I'm I'm curious if you if you think that there is a role for Saban in this program that is like Coach K, or if you think this is a role for him that is going to be way, way more behind the scenes than we're probably forecasting, given how much it feels like he still wants to be part of it where he's showing up at the office the next day after work. Yeah, I mean, he showed up the next three days after That's his right. retirement. I mean, he was there on time every day, just like he always has. And he says he's going to have an office in Bryant-Denny Stadium. And if you uh, see the interview on ESPN with Reese Davis, you know, he talked about maybe – maybe. Uh, being on game day, which is, I think, something he's had uh, at his disposal since 2014. If he ever wanted to retire, I think there was a place for him in game day back in 2014. And I think that would sort of feed the creative and competitive edge of still breaking down film, giving him a reason to go into that office and to do something and still be around the game. He also hinted about, you know, not knowing what the answers are to the portal and the NIL, but he said, I'm going to do some research. And I'm going to talk to some people and ask some questions. 
and he made it sound like he was going to come up with an answer, which make that's almost like uh, I'm going to be an advocate for college football or a commissioner. That's a term that's thrown out a lot. Um, but when it comes to, you know, Kalen DeBoer, to me, said exactly everything you have to say. you got the greatest coach of all time. He says he's going to still spend a lot of time in Tuscaloosa. He's going to have an office during football season. And he said 100% access. Now, I believe Nick Saban is a coach's coach. And he's a man's man. And I think he knows that if I was in Kalen DeBoer's shoes, the last thing I would want is some old coach coming in and meddling. But this is a different situation. Nick Saban helped recruit a lot of these players. Nick Saban, um, at least to this day, has kept some of these players on that roster. And the fact that he's still going to be around, I think, is attractive to some of those players. And, and he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to football. I don't think he's going to be at every practice, but the door will always be open. But in you know, having covered, watched, and then covered a lot of the post-Bear Bryant times, eventually – You've got to hand it over to a guy who isn't going to do it or try to do it the way Bear Bryant did it. And you've got to let him be his man. And if Kalen DeBoer is going to be successful, he's going to be successful not doing it the way Nick Saban did it. He's got to do it the way Kalen DeBoer made it to the national championship game this year at Washington. And he's got to do it with his coaches. And he's got to do it with, you know, the players he recruits. Now he's inheriting a great situation. And there'll be some crossover there. But inevitably, you got to let Kalen DeBoer be Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb be Ryan Grubb. And they can't try to be, be what Nick Saban was because personally, I don't think anybody ever will be. Let's talk about that because that dynamic is interesting. It's a balance. There are certain pieces of what he's walking into where you're going to have to adapt and you're going to have to look at certain situations. You can't have an entire staff from guys from the Northwest or, or something like that. I don't think he would sit here and say that that's the intent. It doesn't look like that's going to be the vision, obviously with some of the higher, some of the, the guys that he's been able to retain so far. What are just your early impressions of him, of, of someone that that is walking into a very one-of-one -one situation? Do you feel like his self-awareness and his understanding of everything that's going to go into this, even Saban still being at the program, do you think they're at the place that they, that they need to be at in order for him to have some some immediate success? Um, I do. I mean, he's, he's got a really good roster there. And I just think his mindset as a 49-year-old who played and coached at Sioux Falls and has worked his way as a coordinator in the outskirts of college football. I mean, he was the OC at Eastern Michigan, for God's sakes. I mean, when Eastern Michigan's on my television, that's usually when I go and make sure the office isn't streaming somewhere or running a marathon on some channel. It's the one program that I watch, and I'm like to myself, yes, sometimes there is too much college football. Uh, but he was the OC there. And then he was the OC at Indiana with uh, Kane Womack, who is South Alabama's head coach with the DC. And Tom Allen was the coach, and they had that my magical year with Michael Penix. And he gets the head coaching job at Fresno State and does a uh, tremendous job after the pandemic and gets that team to nine wins. And then he's at Washington, which was a four and eight program, and Jimmy Lake had uh, run that program into a ditch and he goes 11 and two and now he's in the national championship game in two years to me this guy's just a winner and winners are going to win and uh so I, I i think he handles that because he's a very genuine and humble guy and and not all coaches are that way you know sometimes there's a god complex among among some coaches especially if you start having some success and this guy doesn't seem to have that and i think that will help him a lot in this job 
but the Alabama job to me doesn't really start until you lose your first game. And that's when, you know, you hear the old seven game series in the NBA finals. It doesn't really, the series doesn't really start until you lose the first game at home. Well, to me, the Alabama job doesn't start until you lose your first game and everybody's on our show saying Nick would have done it this way. Nick would have never lost this game. Oh, no, we've lost the game. What's going to happen? Oh, here we're tumbling. The dynasty has crashed. Now how are you going to handle it? You know, can you keep it from being a second loss or, God forbid, a third loss, as we like to call it, the worst year in Nick Saban's career in Tuscaloosa since uh, since he started in 2007. That 2008 on, three years is about as low as it got. Three losses is about as low as it got. So can he handle that? And I think he's built for this. I talked to Brock Heward. Uh, on our show, we we had him on our show, and he said he is the kind of guy that um, will relate to players. Uh, he relates to other coaches, and he will be the most fan friendly coach for a major program you've ever seen. Now, I don't think you can do it at Alabama like you do it at Washington. Like he probably looked at the airport when he landed and thought to himself, "Okay, I, I see what I'm walking into." And then there's two police state troopers that are now on your side as you're walking from the car, uh, from the plane to the car. And then they're by your side as you're walking from the car into your own football complex because there's another couple of thousand people outside. And then he's going to realize that, oh, I've got a driver now who's got to drive me around because they want me looking at tape in the back seat or calling recruits in the back seat so I don't have to drive. And no, I can't go to Publix because people are going to stop for photos and take pictures. The wife and I can't go out to dinner because we're not our food's going to get cold. I mean, it's it's a different world down here, and you know, Mike Price couldn't handle it. And uh, we'll see we'll see if Kalen can. I'm told by people that know him that he'll be able he'll be just fine. He'll be okay. That temperament is something that was seen as a huge positive from Greg Byrne and wanting to have that steady Eddie guy because, man, if if you're not and if you're fiery and if you're just the worst after a loss in a job like this, where you, you're going to want to show that you're the smartest guy in the room. I've seen it so many times before where there are coaches who fail because they think they're the smartest guy in the room and they want to let you know that they're the smartest guy in the room constantly and his ability to have confidence, but also not be defensive in those moments when you are going to fail, you are not going to be as good as Nick Saban. I'm, I'm not breaking any news by saying Kalen DeBoer will not be as good as Nick Saban. That is not a bold take by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I I think if you look at the roster, they've got to hammer the portal too. Like that has to be part of it with what they could lose. What it looks like they're losing probably has changed by the time we started even on this call. But like in order for them to be able to continue to to sustain success, they're going to have to lean on the portal in ways that Nick Saban never had to. So already it looks like he's going to have to do things differently than than obviously his predecessor. Yeah, but his whole... Uh, power five existence in both those years have been in the NIL portal world. And, you know, his quarterback that helped him have that success is a portal guy that he brought from Indiana. So it will not surprise me if there's a few players from Washington on this team. Um, And he would know which ones are the best that could fit in his needs in Tuscaloosa. But this is the hard part uh, of the way the calendar lays out in college football. The only portal that's open as we record this is for Alabama players, Washington players, and Arizona players, all yep. because of the coaching change, right? So only right now, Arizona, Washington, and Alabama players uh, can enter the portal. Now, they can go anywhere. 
and they are cherry picked by everybody. But you don't necessarily get the imports right back from your exports. And that can become a problem. And um, and then he's got to establish recruiting. The best part is, is that the early signing period is over. And you really don't have another major signing class until December. So Nick Saban and his staff did all the hard work for the signing period. He didn't get the job December 3rd and had to put together a class by December 20th. He had a whole class that whoever he can hold on to, he can hold on to. And then he's got a whole year to recruit the 2025 class. So it's a different situation than some some places, but it also it's more difficult when everybody in the program can leave. Everybody. What's realistic expectation for 2024? Um, you know, it's funny. If I was, if if let's just say Dabo Sweeney had had some interest in the job, let's just say that. Um, I would say to Dabo. Well, do you think you can win a national championship in your first three years? And he's won two and lost two. He would have said, absolutely. And then you would say, could you win the national championship twice in your first five years? And he says, well, you know, I've won two. Okay, now could you do three and six? And then you start going to what Saban did. Could you go to eight of ten playoffs? Can you do this and that? So I don't know if the Alabama fans are ready for what could still be good, but not the greatest of all time. Um, But the expectation is Alabama. The Alabama fans have been eating the best cut of meat since 2008. So they're they're not going through the drive-thru. So even though they play Wisconsin week three on the road and then by week at home to the number one team in the country with their quarterback back, Carson Beck and Kirby Smart, the expectation is going to be to win the national championship. And the worst case scenario is that we have to play a home game in the first round of the playoffs. Missing the playoffs, losing three games is not the expectation. And um, I don't know if that's realistic, but that's what he'll have to deal with. Does he win a ring at Alabama? Uh, Lance, who I'll go back to his projection. uh, When he said, when Nick retired, he says, the only way I can get guaranteed the next coach wins a ring is if they hire Kalen DeBoer. And I believe Ryan Grubb is that good of an offensive coordinator. I think they were number five in offensive efficiency. Um, they had three wide receivers that were over a 1,000 yards. That's the one thing I don't understand about Isaiah Bond, who left and went to Texas. And he said it was a business decision. And I understand financials, and Texas has more money than Alabama. Um, and Sark is an unbelievable play caller. So it, it works, and Quinn Ewers spits that system well, so it'll work for Isaiah Bond. But I'm not worried about offensive recruiting. I'm worried about who the defensive coordinator is and keeping all these great Alabama defenders and continue to recruit what, the, what this program was built on, which was unbelievable defensive linemen, linebackers, and DBs. And if uh, – that's, to me, the critical part of can he win a ring? Can he recruit the great defensive player? Because the offense will take care of itself. But the SEC, and I think the national championship, inevitably, is one on defense. It's a fair answer. And it's one that I think Alabama fans, once they see that defensive coordinator hire, whatever it is, as of this moment, we don't know who it's going to be. It'll be off and running. When the that's that's when we really feel like we'll be able to set the bar for for Alabama. Um, but it's it is all of a sudden a, a fascinating program in ways that like 
as great as it's been, it has not been this interesting uh, in quite some time. I think we can all say that. Um, Jim, this has been great. Really, really appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll be talking very, very soon on the next round. Yeah, well, let's at least uh, make sure we talk after the first loss, whenever that is. <laughs> I'll just call you and say, hey, how's how, how are you holding up? Are, are we doing all right? How's How are the calls right now? And, uh, you know, well, we'll what, check what, on Marler first, right? Chris Marler, Vern Fundquist. That is always priority number one in cases like this. We, you, know, you send the, the feeler text, you say, all right, how are we doing? Are, you know, I'm in a couple of different group texts with Marler, so usually there's there's somebody that's checking in on him at some point. But, yeah, I, look, everybody's going to be all right. A new era is upon us, and uh, losses are, are coming, but I don't think they'll be coming in bunches with Kalen DeBoer. Yeah, I would imagine, though, like, remember that 30 for 30, the Bronx is burning? Remember oh, that yeah. One? That was really good back of the day. Really, really good. Really well done. Um, I, I don't produce those kind of things, but if you got somebody that does, I would just be in Tuscaloosa. Tell them to take a camera crew and be in Tuscaloosa after that first loss, maybe the September 28th to Georgia, and uh, just do a remake. Tuscaloosa is burning because there'll be a couch or something set on fire that night if Georgia comes in town and beats them. Oh, music to Georgia fans' ears. You just provided yeah. it right there. Jim, you're the best. Thanks, man. Thank you. Jersey contest. I teased it at the top. If you're watching this on YouTube, you already know. Will, uh, a Bobby Boucher jersey, is that game worn from the Bourbon Bowl? Did we have a Bourbon Bowl patch in there as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, we got the we got the Bourbon Bowl patch right there, if you can see it. Um, that's the, you know, commemorative. You know, when you when you make big-time plays in big-time games, you know, you get to play on the big stage. Uh, talking about Bobby Boucher, you know, this is a guy that would love Blake Baker. I think that Bobby Boucher, after his performance in the Bourbon Bowl, uh, you know, the Tigers would have come calling. They would have said, you know, son, we've got this thing called the transfer portal. Um, they would have had to really sell his mom. You know, number one, they say, you know, my son Bobby, he's not going to Baton Rouge because I know that red is rouge. That's the color of the devil. That's just devil speak. Mm-hmm. Number two, transfer portal. I've never heard of portal in my life. Where's that portal going? Okay. It's on the computer. Is that something on the computer? Well, you can get viruses. I heard on Facebook, you know, you could get viruses on the computer. So we're not getting in the portal. So Blake Baker would have to call that house. He'd have to knock on the door. He'd probably have to get Bo Davis. We might have to even call Coach O, who is, I'm sure, his neighbor now. Uh, Coach O would have to come down there in his rowback gear and say, hey, listen, son, the Tigers need you. But I think Bobby Boucher would really fit on this current LSU team. And so that's, that's why we're sitting here talking about Bobby Boucher bringing back the hard-hitting defense, bringing back the pass rush, you know what I'm saying, and bringing back the hopefully we can get our own Bobby Boucher and Harold Perkins this year. Just no thinking, son, pin the ears back and just. Over under 50 snaps per game that Matt House would drop Bobby Boucher into coverage. (laughs) I'm telling you, that's that's actually the good one. How would Matt House use Bobby Boucher? He'd have a lot of receiver. He's like. Coach told me to stay in the zone. I am in the zone. I'm trying to tackle the quarterback. He's got him at slot corner. He's like, just got him lined up over this like five, nine guy. It's just like, what? What in the world are we doing here? Bobby Bobby's Boucher. just beating the crap out of the quarterback. The receiver's like running in. Isaiah Bond's like dancing in the end zone. Yeah. So that, that, but that's my big thing. I, I love, I love Waterboy. Obviously it's a, it's a movie that is, you know, man, sometimes, uh, a little bit of uh, the cultural stuff is accurate. And, and we joke about that all the time. Like when I did MMA, my mom, I didn't tell her for the longest time until I got a concussion. <laughs> mom, I got bad news for you. <laughs> and she said, what? What do you 
me? Why are you doing MMA? You're not getting the scholarship for that. Da, 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 da. So, I mean, there is there is a little bit of truth to that, but I, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And so, of course, I was Bobby Boucher, not last Halloween, but the one before. So it's a cool jersey to have, man. It is uh, one of those where if you get it, you just you just know. And I think you got to respect the person that wears a Bobby Boucher jersey. You just never know. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not assuming that they're going to just go airborne and, and target you in public. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to have head on a swivel. Like when you go to the grocery store and there's someone walking the opposite way down that dairy aisle, if they're not giving you a full like glance, protective, use the cart to kind of shield themselves, that's on them. Yeah. I, that that jersey commands respect each and every time that it is worn. You can find those, I think, in a good amount of places now. It's not it's not like totally what what was I gonna say? Like you don't have to go through some weird third party website to be able to get it. like I feel like I've gone to jersey stores yeah. and, and seen Bobby Boucher jerseys. Yeah, and I'm you know, we've talked about the rules, especially as we get older with jerseys and everything. I'm not one who'll get like a Wu Tang jersey or something. Like I think making a jersey as something that shouldn't have a jersey is not cool. But like like uh, the Finkel one from Ace Ventura, I think is pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it's a real jersey that someone wore in a movie, I think that counts. So, yeah, they, they sell this at legit places. It's not like some custom, like, whatever. Good to know. Fun fact, they shot that movie here. Um, oh, wow. Why am I blanking? They, they shot it, like, 40 minutes away at, mm-hmm. uh, oh, why am I blanking on the name of college? I'm having Oh, a- Stetson. At Stetson. Thank you. Stetson, yes. Stetson. I was thinking to myself, like, don't say Sanford. Don't say Sanford. Not Sanford. Yeah. Stetson, where Corey Kluber went and uh, Jacob deGrom both mm-hmm. went. Uh, but, yeah, they shot that movie on campus there well before I was here. Could not go over there and see it. Yeah, what man. Would have been really cool. Um, okay. That's, that's a good entry. I think the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to put out a Twitter poll with the first four jerseys that we have had and what is the best jersey so mm-hmm. far, we will have the people vote on. So go follow Saturday on South Podcast on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, at the SDS pod um, to be able to do that. And we'll just kind of break it up into segments. And then we'll have, you know, each jersey kind of advance. And that'll be like our bracket style um, tournament to be able to decipher who has the best jersey. That's I, I told Will when he came on, like, that's probably going to win. Bobby Boucher is probably going to win. If you're of this generation, you know. Listen, you can't slow play that because like of a football jersey, I don't know if I have a better one than that than that Woodson one you had. That is like a you can't get that anymore. You know what I'm saying? That's a part that's a part of history right there. True, true. Not if it were stitched, it would be even better. I I will say that. But replica mm-hmm. knocks me off a, a few points at least. All right, lad of the week, Will. Um I've got one that is probably the lad of the week in the United States for okay. the weekend, I, I guess you could say. Dan Campbell. Led the Lions to their first playoff victory in 32 years, in case you haven't heard. No matter how Mm -hmm. many times I say that, it just sounds crazy. I am 33. I am a lifelong Bears fan who makes fun of the Lions every single chance that I possibly can. They are the loins. Yes, they are the loins. I have not said loins all year. I haven't. Mm -hmm. Out of respect for who the Lions have become, a respectable franchise, I cannot sit here and call them the loins. Even when the Bears beat them, I did not call them the loins. Can't do it. I don't think... They're going to win it all, but I do find myself pulling for them to be able to win it all. I don't care that they're in the vision. doesn't really matter, but Ford Field just looked incredible on Sunday night. I mean, that that atmosphere looked second to none. It looked mm-hmm. like an absolute blast. But like to win, to hold off Stafford after making probably the most noteworthy trade in franchise history, it just kind of feels like a, a Hollywood script. Dan Campbell would be the perfect Hollywood coach for this role. He almost seems like a caricature or something like yep. that. 
cool seeing our guy Billy Lucci with Tex Ags on the sidelines with Campbell because, of course, he is a former Aggie. People forget that. But, yeah, just not like another former Aggie who's a terrible head coach, Dennis Allen. Oh, God. I forgot Dennis Allen was a former Aggie. Former Aggie, Man. former Falcon. We're on to you. Yeah. We know. I, Aggies have good coach representation uh, mm-hmm. right now in the NFL with two. There's probably one that I'm forgetting as well. Um, but, yeah, we talked about adapt or die. Dan Campbell, he he adapted. He understood the history. Hasn't been stubborn. Offensive mastermind on his staff helps. Ben Johnson, offensive line, just destroys people and all the valuable skill players. I uh, I was trying to think if there's a college football equivalent to Detroit in the current context, mostly current. Kansas. That that might upset some Detroit people, but like it's got to be Kansas. Always fighting for attention. With, you know, Kansas hoops, obviously. Detroit, kind of similar. Not necessarily one thing, but at a given time, if yeah. you're not good, you have a town of four major sports. So that's probably going to you know hurt you at some point. But a coach who totally changed the culture after decades of minimal success. And, you know, outside of like a one off here and there, like what Kansas had 2007. And then you hear some of these stats with them and you just go, wait a minute. Like that was Kansas's first winning record in Big 12 play since 2007. Like, Oh, who could forget that year? Yeah. Oh, magical. When everybody had a chance to win a national championship. But how about Lance Leipold turning down Washington to stay yeah. at Kansas? That's pretty crazy. Pretty, pretty crazy. Jed Fish ends up getting the job, of course. But uh, that that pretty much puts all my Arizona love on hold for the time being. Got to wait and see where Noah Fafita ends up. That is where I will end up as a fan of Noah Fafita. I already want to redo my way too early top 10. Will I do Mm -hmm. because I did it before, you know, even the Saban announcement. So like before all that, before the Ohio state stuff before, you know, just a lot of different things that have gone into this, but I'm going to have to do like a, a post spring update just because it's already wrong. Like I would look at it now and be like, gross, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think, you know, you're hitting on something here, which is that I I always just transition to being a rampant NBA fan and then, like, lose half my college, my college football followers that follow me during the podcast season. But I just love the NBA. I just make no bones about it. We joke about random NBA players on here. And it's I'm finding it harder and harder to do that this year. Like, I'm finding it because every day is, like, some crazy thing is happening. And, and I'm, I listen to podcasts, you know, SEC podcasts, mainly LSU podcasts. And I'm like, can you put an episode, put an episode, put, put on an episode. I need to know about today. I don't care about what happened on Thursday. Everything's changed. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a wild landscape we live in. Yeah. But I, I'm, that was a great lad of the week. I'm, I'm right there with you, I think. And it's funny with Detroit, you know, you talked about it. It's like, it's so weird because we have this image in our heads and I think Michigan might play into that and they kind of got it off their back this year too. Um, shout out to our guy, Michael Dark, who's probably having the week of his life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so point being, like, you know, we often, you know, it's crazy because in the South, we're not huge hockey fans, but the Red Wings, you know, won one earlier, right? Two back-to-back World Series by the, tig- by the Tigers are, like, two dominant runs or, like, two great teams. Um, and then the Pistons, obviously, won the titles in the 2000s, won the titles, like, in the Jordan era. era. Not a, I mean, not historically a trash franchise, but for, like, almost all of my life, the, what I've seen Detroit has not been good because I watched the NFL. I watched the Pistons during their down years and they're on a massive losing streak right now. Didn't watch a ton of baseball, didn't watch a ton of hockey. So for like us in the national conversation, Detroit has kind of been this, this struggling city. But like you said, for what they care about, like now they have Michigan too. It's like, you kind of flip a switch. It's like, dang, actually we have some stuff going on. Still not the Pistons. So great, great, great guy. Couldn't be better to be in Detroit this past week. Could not be worse to be in Seattle this past week. Poor Seattle, man. Poor one out. 
pouring out yeah. for all those Seattle folks. I got an aunt that lives in Bellevue. I might just send a text to her and be like, you good? She doesn't have any, yeah. you know, watching Huskies affiliation, but roots for the Seahawks and stuff. But man, that is, oh, just kick to the nuts after kick to the nuts. Really, really brutal. Yeah, once again, the most opportunistic marketing team in all of the sports, uh, the Kraken, are just licking their chops right now because they are just like, let's go. Let's go, boys. They continue to just hit things at the right time. Um, so my lad of the week uh, is, is kind of, I mean, I don't know. It's its its a little bit, can be a little bit sus to call another man adorable, but I think this is adorable, right? Kyle Juszczyk, okay? Kyle Juszczyk and the amount of fanboying that he did for his wife, I think is something that we could all kind of like hope for and hope that we could be kind of reminded me of you. I could see you doing this with Lauren. If she had like a, you know, a craft business or something, I could see you sharing it all on Facebook. And so to tell the story, Cal Juszczyk's wife is acquaintances with Taylor Swift. And she made the big jacket for this massively cold playoff game that the chiefs played the dolphins. In. And of course, you know, the chiefs went on the win and the snow, it was brutal, but Taylor looked awesome. She was, you know, serving and everything. And so then Kyle Juszczyk took the Twitter to just have a little PR conference and address every question and concern about his wife and the jersey and just hype her up. And anytime anybody talked about the jacket, he was just like, jacket made by Christian Juszczyk every single time. Well, I, I don't see your logo. I see a Nike logo. Well, yeah, because she made it out of official Nike logos. That's Christine Juszczyk. Check her out. And you can just see him. And it hasn't, I mean, I am counting and counting and counting and counting tweets. Kyle Juszczyk just going, made by Christian Juszczyk, sharing her video, sharing her TikTok, sharing all this stuff, going, you got it, babe. Good job. You know what I'm saying? And like, it's funny because he's like retweeting. He goes from like sparsely retweeting like 49ers, like generic PR <laughs> stuff to like Christian Juszczyk, Christian Juszczyk, Christian Juszczyk. And that's how you know that dude is just in love because he's not like, everyone check out my wife's jersey. I'm proud of her. He Every time anyone, like you could tell he was searching the name. It was yeah. just in the replies. Taylor Swift oh, jacket, just search. That's all you Literally. He was searching Taylor Swift jacket in the replies of random dudes, all pro fullback, maybe on a Hall of Fame pace for a fullback. He's the best in the game and has been just going, no, no, no. Actually, hold on. I can feel that question right there. Kyle Juszczyk here, uh, husband of Christian Juszczyk. Yeah, it is actually authentic. Um, and if you'd like one, here's the website. And <laughs> so I think that's awesome. He's lad of the week. He also did the Taylor Lautner jacket as, or jersey as well. There was some sort of custom thing that he did with mm -hmm. Taylor Lautner, who is, of course, Taylor Swift's ex. So yep. clearly there is some sort of use check connection into the Taylor world. Here's my one question when I saw that. And I know that this is like the most documented thing on the internet and people are sick of T-Swift, whatever. The jacket itself was unzipped mm -hmm. the whole time. Did she have some sort of thermo thing going on under there? Because they they had the windows open at times. And then everybody saw the picture where she's like, or the screen grab, whatever it was, where it was like, mm -hmm. you know, basically frosted over ice. And she's somehow peeking through the one part that isn't. How cold do you think she was when it was open? Or was that just the power of the jacket that it was that good and it could keep her warm, even though like clearly it didn't look like it was meant to be zipped up. Yes, I think that's accurate. This is just me spitballing here. Kyle, I'm sure you're listening. You can reach out. Um, I would I would assume, you know, if you're a woman and you're wearing kind of a dress like coat, as you sit up and sit down, the proportions of it change, your knees start to do whatever. Number one, it can be unflattering, but number two, it could rip the material. So I'm assuming that jacket was meant to be open so that she could comfortably get up, sit down, have Definitely. a fit under it to coordinate it all with. Because if you sit down on a big jacket like that, you kind of look like a tub no matter who you are. And so it was able to show, okay, this is Taylor. She's still looking good. She's still, you know, skinny. She's still looking great under there. She's got a fit going on. Like she's not an amorphous, like 
blob or whatever but also <laughs> like you can like she goes like literally you can see this video three four or five times on use checks twitter if you go to it and she goes in the house she makes it and I, I think you're right that's a really good point i think it was designed to stay open so that there are no unflattering pictures that's really next level it's really smart mm-hmm. someone who, who very clearly gets it by the way football weather doesn't have to be that just anybody saying that that is football weather you're saying it from the comfort of your couch you're not actually saying that being out there one of those psychos like the images that we saw from buffalo by the time people are listening to this buffalo will have already maybe played that game or maybe not i don't know we're recording this before that but Mm -hmm. the images that i saw from that that made me think to myself who on planet earth wants to spend their time out there in those elements no way i don't care how big of a fan you are i'm not gonna hate on you but i'm just saying if i if i'm wanting something to be over and i'm paying hundreds of dollars for that thing to want to be over i'm not in the right place and i guess that maybe that's maybe that's just me that's not that's not football weather yeah and i'll i'll give you credit that i continue to because you know you do almost zero percent of the like joel clatt close-minded big 10 up north exceptionalism like and like that was i could understand that knock when you write when you came from the big the big 10 site but if you're saying that now about connor it's lazy because i've never seen you pine for the snow and the football weather and the long mm. grass you came down here you saw some publixes you were like you know what <laughs> actually this is more fun i don't want to be in a blizzard anymore that's fine i'm not tougher than you because i survived it's fine it's like this, t- this toughness thing that people have to prove it's like you know what's wrong it can be in the 40s it can be in the 50s and that's i i guess fun and great but if you're telling me that football weather oh this is real football weather it's you know, the ice bowl, it's got to be negative five, wind chill, negative 30. Like, no, right? no, I want to see the sport that I like actually played and yeah. not sit there with people that are miserable and just have people that look like they're a shell of themselves. Like, sorry, I'm, I guess I'm, the, I'm that guy. But yeah, the, those scenes were just wild. Why the, the cracked helmet, cracked, Pat, Pat almost cracked his helmet. What? Yeah, that's not, and that's one of those things where it's like, if you're, you know, the, the manufacturer's like, what do you want us to do? We would recommend you wouldn't play in this. What do you want us to do? We can't stress test this for negative six or whatever. That doesn't work for us. So yeah, I, 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 I'm right there with you. It's like, yeah, to have it as a novelty, like the Lions game with Calvin, where you had like the snow coming out of this stuff. It's cool sometimes, but to have the fate of your season, like if you're a Dolphins fan, you know, you're like, come on, bro. And like, even especially with Buffalo, where it's like, that's on play. We can't even get, that's the thing. People got, got all freaking protective of their masculinity. This is how I know people are insecure. People got all, like, got all protective of their masculinity without even learning the facts, which is that they couldn't even get there. The team couldn't yeah. even get there to play the game. Because they're like, what played? It's like, oh, yeah, you want to endanger a pilot, the crew, the whole team. You want to fly into a blizzard or, or make them be on a bus for what? So you sitting on your couch with your hot cocoa can go, well, that's grown man football right there. Yeah. You get out there, stupid right tackle if you want to do that, all right? Hey, man, <laughs> get out there. Tell, tell me that this is a pleasant experience for those. Right. Guys. No way. Absolutely no way. Uh, yeah, I think that'll do it. That's uh, that's That was a, a full Kalen DeBoer episode. Mm-hmm. The uh, five-star reviews, keep them coming, please. Leave us a five-star review. If you haven't done anything good today that you're really proud of, that can be the good thing that you do today that you're really proud of is leaving your favorite podcast a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube mm-hmm. channel, Saturday Down South, where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Beat. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Seth Down South, at C. Joe Garrow, at Go Soren. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.